So today is the second Sunday in the Easter season, and usually this is a good Sunday to start a new worship series, but we're not today. We're not starting a new worship series. We actually have a one-off sermon this week, so this is a unique experience. Usually we have a sermon series going right after Easter season, and today we're just looking at some text from Acts chapter 26, verses 9 through 18. But I want to provide a little bit of context for us because perhaps if you haven't read Acts much in your life or not recently, maybe uh, this might come as a surprise to you, some of what's getting communicated. So I want to share a little bit of the background, a little bit of the context of what's happening here. Acts is the second book written by Luke and one of the main characters in Acts as it explores the growth of the Christian church after Jesus' death and resurrection. One of the main characters is the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 9, the story tells of his narrative of his conversion experience. And then later on, as he's going about his missionary journeys and doing the work that Jesus has called him to do, which is to share the gospel with the Gentiles, he's doing this. And he converts a couple of Gentiles to Christianity, to the way. And he brings them to Jerusalem, and they undergo purification rites, and they enter into the temple. Now, for the leaders and the chief priests that were in Jerusalem, this was a problematic for the community to see persons that were Gentiles walking into the temple. And so people raise, a big commotion takes place in Jerusalem, and they kick the Gentiles and Paul out of the temple, and there's a big fight that ensues. And a Roman centurion is walking by, seeing all of this taking place, and he arrests Paul and takes Paul under his authority as a centurion and arrests him and takes him to Caesarea, which is a city close by. And while he's in Caesarea, he is under the, uh, under the power of a Roman governor there. And the Roman governor was named Felix. And Felix interrogates Paul and asks him what he did wrong. And Felix decides to not do anything about Paul. He just says, I'm not going to make a decision about what to do about you. You can stay in prison uh, for as long as I'm the governor, I'm just not going to make a decision about what to do about you. So Paul stays in prison for over two years in Caesarea. And a new governor comes to town, and the new governor uh, decides to do something with Paul because he says, there's a prisoner, and I don't know what's going on with him. So invites King Agrippa, the Jewish king living in Jerusalem, to come and to hear Paul's defense. So you're going to hear Paul share a defense of his faith and his conversion experience to this community, this people that are gathered there. It's, it's Governor Festus, King Agrippa, his wife Bernice, and a court full of people are going to hear what Paul has to say to them. So that is the context of Acts chapter 26. And now listen to verses 9 through 18. Listen to God's word. Indeed, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things against the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is what I did in Jerusalem with the authority received from the chief priests. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison, but I also cast my vote against them when they were being condemned to death. By punishing them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And since I was so furiously enraged at them, I pursued them even to foreign cities. With this in mind, I was traveling to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests when at midday along the road, Your Excellency, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, 
shining around me and my companions. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It hurts you to kick against the goads. And then I asked, who are you, Lord? And the Lord answered, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up, stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you to serve and to testify to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you. I will rescue you from your people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. This is the gift of God's word. Let's pray together. Gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts, be pleasing and acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In the story where Paul is speaking to this courtroom scenario where there's a governor, a king, and a crowd full of people gathered there, what I'm really struck by in this story is the context in which Paul is sharing his faith story and the people who are gathered there around him. Uh, this is a community that's gathered around him that has no idea anything about Jesus. And if anything, that world in the first century was filled, filled with a, a term of religious pluralism. There were so many different senses of what religiosity looked like at that time. For the Romans who were there, they had their own sense of religion. And for King Agrippa, being a Jewish person, he had his sense of religion. And who knows what else was represented in that room that was gathered there that day listening to Paul speak to him. This is so interesting. And if I think about our lives, and if we think about our lives and the social location in which we live, we are also filled with a world of so many different various religions in our midst and different religious expressions. And this is the idea of plurality of religions. I'm really struck by this, and I think it's so interesting and this story from Acts chapter 26, I think, invites us to think of what good external discourse might look like between faith traditions. A good sharing of faith journey and faith stories with persons outside of the bounds of Christianity. I think Acts 26 does this for us. And I want us to explore this idea of what good discourse looks like beyond the boundaries of Christianity and good perspectives on talking about our faith story with other people. I was really blessed by the mentorship of a professor at Princeton Theological Seminary. His name was Daryl Guter, and Daryl Guter is a, a very fine scholar, and he loved a theologian by the name of Leslie Newbegin, and Leslie Newbegin was a missionary who lived in India for over 30 years. He moved from England to India for 30 years. And you can imagine living in a culture in a place that was so far removed from Western civilization that had a profound change in his life. And especially what he thought it meant to be and to do in the work of what it meant to be a missionary in that place. And it was very fascinating. And I want to get to some of the things that he has to say about 
what a good encounter uh, of sharing our gospel story and our faith story in a world of, of plural religions looks like. But Daryl would always tell us at seminary that we should not stop relationship or communion with other people, Christian or others, in religion as a result of theological difference. He would always tell us that. Don't end relationship or communion with other people because of theological differences you might have with them. Now, this might sound pithy or just like a nice thing to say, but in seminary, it's filled with people with different theological ideas, and they're there to be trained and to be formed, perhaps in all of those differences. And all the conversations you end up having are about the differences that take place in our sense of theology and who God is. Um, but Daryl said, don't end relationship. Don't break off from relationship with people. And he said this because perhaps the dominant perspective on what external discourse looked like uh, for hundreds of years, maybe even thousands of years, was that at the center of the idea of having a dialogue with somebody was a question. And the question was, who can be saved? Who can be saved? And Daryl always told us this is also a really bad question. <laughs> this is a bad question because the only person who can answer that question is God. No one else can answer that question, who can be saved? Only God can answer that question. And so perhaps in our world, in the world of the first century, in asking this question now of who can be saved, it's not clear at all anymore. Maybe there was some sense of some signs that you could have a sense about answering that question, but now it's very clear that you just can't answer this question at all. Who can be saved? And so we've abandoned this question of who can be saved. But sadly, I think for our world too, we've also just abandoned the idea of having dialogue with other people in other faith traditions and having any kind of conversation whatsoever. And this is what Guter taught us at seminary about thinking about uh, good external dialogue he said this, he said, instead of thinking about the status of other people and their relationship with God, instead, think about for yourself, what is the meaning and the goal of our common human story in which we are all together participating in? And he breaks this question down into two small questions for us. And he says, perhaps we shouldn't think about the status of other people but we should think about these two questions and responding to them to other people. Who is God and what is God doing in my life? How is God at work in my life? And he said, when you're invited to share, share those two questions. Who is God and where is God at work in my life? Now, Daryl Guter and Leslie Newbigin are very smart people. Um, but I don't think they came up with these ideas on their own. I actually think the things that they notice come straight out of Acts 26 and Paul's conversion story and how he shares it also with this room filled with people. See, Paul's invited to speak. I didn't read that part of the beginning of Acts 26, but they say, Paul, will you share with us what's going on and give us an account of why you're here? So Paul speaks once he's invited. And then he begins to tell them about who God is for him. And this is an amazing part of the story for sure, no doubt. This is an amazing part of the story for sure. When Paul is walking along on the road to Damascus, this blinding light knocks him off the horse and he's laying there with his friends and he hears a voice speaking in Hebrew to him and he acknowledges that this voice is divine. Something significant is happening in front of him and he says, who are you, Lord? 
who are you, Lord? He knows that this is a divine moment of revelation taking place in front of him. And the voice speaks in Hebrew and says, I am Jesus. I am Jesus. Now for Paul, for his community, they would have known this to be divine revelation. The voice of God speaking. Paul was so steeped in his traditions. He knew the stories about Moses being at the burning bush and seeing a blinding light, a burning bush, and going, who, who are you, Lord, speaking to me right now? Oh, I am who I am. This is perhaps the burning bush moment of the New Testament in which Jesus himself says, it is me, Jesus, the one you're persecuting, the one you're persecuting, Jesus of Nazareth, is actually the divine one the one whom you are actually seeking to have relationship with. So Paul answers this question, who is God? Who is God? And then the next question, where is God at work in my life for the Apostle Paul? Now, Jesus says something sort of curious, and he uses a metaphor from first century agriculture, which they all would have been very aware of what this is. He says, it hurts you when you kick against the goads. Does anybody know what a goad is? This is a, some, maybe there's some farmers in our midst, I don't know, <laughs> but we're in Silicon Valley. Um, a goad was a first century device that was kind of like a long spear, and one side of it was really sharp, and they would put these behind animals while they were plowing the fields so that horses and ox would move in the proper direction, so that as they were pulling things along in the field, they would move them in the right direction. So when animals would kick, if they didn't want to go that way, they would kick against the goads, and it would hurt really bad, and they would know not to go that way. But it would be a way of moving them in a proper direction, and in a proper direction. So Jesus says this to Paul, it hurts you to kick against the goads. Now friends, if I'm honest about this text, I've been reading this story for the last 15 years of my life, all the time. I've read this story a lot in my life. And as I have interpreted the, this, this part about the goads, and how it hurts Paul, I think for most of my life until just reading it this week, I've always interpreted the direction of his life to be about his status before God. His status before God. And what I mean by that is that he did not know Jesus before this and that he was being hurt because he, he wasn't yet saved. Going back to that question of who can be saved. But now, as I look in this question this week, there's something that's standing out to me that's perhaps more significant than this idea of salvation and human status before God, which is the violence that Paul was committing to the Christian community. And he says this before. He says, I was persecuting the Christians in Damascus. I was sent to go there, and I was voting to have the Christians be put to death. Now, that kind of violence in one's life, you can't commit that kind of violence without also experiencing deep trauma to yourself. And the harm that he was inflicting on other people, he was inflicting serious harm on himself. He was kicking against the goads. He was going counter to the direction that Jesus wanted him to go in his life. Jesus wanted him to go in a different direction. Yes, relationship with him, perhaps more importantly, ending the violence that he was enacting in his life. Ending the violence that he was enacting in his life. Now sharing this as a first person account in a room with a Roman governor and a Jewish king 
about violence. We don't know what happens to Agrippa and to the governor. We don't know what happens to them. But one can only imagine that here is a witness of somebody that wants to leave violence behind and move towards a more peaceful and loving way of life. And it must have had an impact on them. You can only imagine it had to have had an impact on them. For two years, Paul lived in prison in Caesarea. And because of his witness and his way of peace and love and life and following Jesus Christ, the governors allowed him to have visitors come and see him in prison. And that was the beginning of the deacon's ministry, actually, the acts of compassion. When the deacon showed up to be with Paul while he was in prison for those two years, to come alongside him and to be with him. It's a radical conversion experience, not just the theological component, but the radical conversion experience of being one who was pursuing to kill these people, and now these people are coming to be with him in prison and love him and take care of him. And this is a profound witness for the people that are gathered in that room that day. And Paul is communicating something about what our shared human experience might look like. It's profound. It's profound. So when invited, share your story, who is God, and also where God is at work in your life. This is a really simple model, and yet it's significant and profound. And the beauty of it is that anyone can do this. Anyone can share their story when they're invited to share their story. We all have a story, right? We all must have a story of some way of God at work in our life. If you're here in the sanctuary today, God is at work in your life in some way. And you can try to communicate that story in some way. And the beauty of it, as we have conversation and relationship with people outside the bounds of Christian faith, is we don't have to worry about the status of that person in their relationship with God. So often I think that's why we don't end up talking to other people outside of our faith traditions, is we think, I, I don't know, I, I don't know, that's too much responsibility for me to be interacting with that person. But I think the invitation here is to let that go. Let that go and speak from our own first person account about who is God and what God is doing in our life. Children can do it. Five-year-olds, 20-year-olds, 80-year-olds, 95-year-olds, we all can do this. Everyone can share a story. I have two first-person testimony stories that I want to share with you all. One came from the Amor uh, Mexico mission trip that happened a few weeks ago. And there's a photo of Fernando. You can put that photo up now. Fernando is standing to the left of me in this photo. And Fernando worked for uh, Amor Ministries. He was one of the Mexican staff persons. And for the last couple of years, we've tried to invite different Mexican speakers to come and share during our worship services while we're in Mexico. Every night we're in Mexico, we have a worship service. And Fernando was working with us that week, and he came. And on the first night, he shared his testimony with us all. Now, I said we were having a conversation about um, communicating our faith story in spaces in which we are differing faith accounts. And I say that because the Mexico mission trip is actually a space of profound religious pluralism. I read all the documents of all the students that go on the trip, and we always ask them, what is your relationship with God like? And of the 46 students that went, maybe 10 or 15 said they had a relationship with God at some level. They couldn't account for that question. 
And so that space is actually a space that's filled with religious pluralism. And Fernando was sharing his testimony that night with everybody, and he answered the questions, who is God? He talked about Jesus, and then he answered the question of where God was at work in his life, and he shared it like this. He said, well, maybe you don't get the nuances because we're not in Tijuana, but he said, you know, I grew up Catholic, but Catholics just get to do whatever they want to do with their life. <laughs> I don't know what that means for some of you. I don't know what he means, but he laughed, and we all laughed about it. And then, and then he said, I, when I was a young man, I got into a lot of trouble, and I was an alcoholic, and I did some really bad things. And one night, I should not have driven home after I drank all night with my friends, but I did it. And I got in my truck, and I drove home. And as I was driving up the road and up this mountain, I swerved, and I went over the hill, and I, my truck rolled all the way down this mountain a couple hundred feet and I crashed at the bottom. And he said, as he was in the truck, he had this deep sense and awareness that his friends who had been inviting him to church and to relationship with God, that somehow he was alive in this moment and that that was because God was a God of second chances that his friend had said to him. God was a God of second chances. So he got out of the car and he looked up at the hillside and all these people had stopped to see what had happened and they all started applauding and clapping for him that he was alive. Isn't that amazing? In America, if somebody crashes their car and they're a drunk driver, I think we just shame them <laughs> and say, bad for you. But all these people rallied around him and said, we're so happy you're alive. And he said, so am I, and I will never do this again. And he changed his life through the church and through some friends, and he stopped drinking, and he became, and he started working for more ministries. And he's been building houses for poor people for the last 15 years ever since then. He had an amazing journey and faith story. It was incredible. And we don't know what impact it had on other people, but I don't think we need to know because something significant was being communicated in that moment. A shared human experience was happening. A second story I want to share with you all is that as a pastor, sometimes in the Protestant church, it's really easy to get, um, it's really easy to be insulated into our world as clergy in that I might only spend my time with other Presbyterian pastors. It's really easy to become really insulated. And so for years, I've actually prayed for more interfaith relationships in my life. I've prayed for more interfaith relationships in my life. And two years ago, a pastor in San Mateo decided to host a, a monthly meeting between interfaith clergy in the peninsula. And I've been going to that quite a bit for the last two years, and it's been one of the greatest joys of my life. Um, I'm so thankful that God answered that prayer for me in my life. And a few weeks ago, we were gathered together, and our cohort leader asked us in a small group and asked us if we would just share something about where God was at work in our life right now. And my friend, who is one of the leaders at the Yassin Foundation in Belmont, she's a Muslim, and she's part of the interfaith cohort with us, and she started to answer this question for herself about where God was at work in her life, and she told us a story about how a few nights ago, she has two children, a son and a daughter, and her son, I think, is about seven or eight years old, and every once in a while, you know how kids are. They come running into mom and dad's room in the middle of the night. They have a nightmare. And they just want to be comforted so they can go back to sleep and know everything's okay. But this particular night, her son had had a really bad nightmare and could not leave the bedroom, could not leave them. And got in and 
fell asleep with mom and dad. That was the only way he was going to sleep that night. So the next morning, my friend woke up and started talking to him and said, what dream did you just have that you couldn't get out of bed? And he had had this horrible dream that he was at the mosque at the Yassin Foundation, and he got separated from his mother and father, and there was someone there to enact religious violence on them. This little seven or eight-year-old child had this horrible nightmare. And I remember talking to her about that and her sharing that, and I thought the radical conversion experience that Paul experienced about God being at work in his life was to end religious violence, but to move towards a life of love, liberation, and grace, and ending all of that kind of way of violence. And because we're friends, I was able just to share my own response to her in a personal conversation in which I said that. The God I know is a God of love and grace and would want to change and transform us from any kind of violence towards a way of life and love. And it was one of the most joyous conversations I've ever had. And it all started with this conversation about who is God and where God is at work and sharing our first person stories. That's it, friends. It's up to us in this world in which we live to connect with people, to not be separated because of our theological difference, but to know our stories, who God is, and where God is at work in our lives, and to engage in relationship with people, to become a more loving world that we should all be living in together, to change from violence into grace.